You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. A Jeopardy means one of those moments when you've bet all your money, everything is on the line. Arthur. It was Philbin. Regis Philbin, yes. Arthur. What is Louisiana? That's the state. Arthur. What is Dell? Dell is the company. Arthur. What are pixels? Right. And you have... This 30-year-old from Ohio is single-handedly turning America's favorite quiz show into a mind game. It took a little while for Arthur to get the audiences to warm up to him. This Asian on Jeopardy is one of the worst human beings on the planet. The Asian guy on Jeopardy is such a cocky bastard. I hope your wife dies. My dad always taught me, with good reason, that there's value in a simple life, a life without jeopardy, as little as possible. A steady job, you know, keeping your head down, avoiding controversy, avoiding conflict. I had all that. And now, I started saying yes to those jeopardies instead of saying no. You know, I have the right to be heard. I have the right to be different. I have the right to break rules. To me, that's something Asian Americans haven't done enough of, that we don't have enough political activism. We don't have enough people speaking out and being different. We don't have enough people making the Welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. This is a little discussion of a recent documentary called Who is Arthur Chu? Joining me is Mr. Rod Lott. Hello, thanks again for having me back. Always good to have you, and always good to talk documentaries with you, even though uh, you know I, I feel like I'm kind of putting you in a box here, always making you talk about documentaries. I, I, until you just mentioned it, I really didn't even notice that, that, was the, that I'm the go-to guy for that. Next time, narrative film, I promise. <laughs> this is a film from 2017. It is just kind of starting out on the festival circuit. I think it's played a couple different places. And it is about the, we'll just say Jeopardy contestant Arthur Chu, because it's a lot uh, easier to say that than other ways. But I'm curious, are you a Jeopardy fan, Rod? I used to watch Jeopardy daily back, oh, middle school, high school. But I've not watched Jeopardy in a long time, so I was not even actually familiar with Arthur Chu. I think the last Jeopardy contestant I was familiar with was Ken Jennings, and I didn't even see that. But it seems like he was in the news a lot, but Arthur Chu was new to me. So as a stranger to Arthur Chu, what did you think of the documentary? I'm kind of still processing it a little bit. I, I'm kind of mixed on it. I I went into it completely blind. I mean, the title's perfect. Who is Arthur Chu? Because I didn't know. I, I, I wouldn't say that they actually answer the question that they pose in as much detail as I would have liked. They set up things that I don't feel like they uh, followed up upon. Um, there are issues raised that a lot. Uh, some issues get. Uh, 
glossed over, whereas others they dive really deep into. And I think the, the documentary starts as one thing and ends as another. I don't want to give too much away, but like uh, I won't give anything away. <laughs> but like the ending even, the very last thing you see before the credits, I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Fill in that. Tell me that story. And there, there's a lot of things like that throughout that pop up that I feel like I wanted to know more about. Gosh, if I was uh, really being pedantic here, I could say that the movie plays like a game of Jeopardy that Arthur Chu plays, because Arthur Chu, his style of playing threw people for a loop, and he would jump all over the board. He would never stay in one category, because that's one of the things that people generally do, right? They choose a category, they start at the top, and they work their way down, and they go through each single one, they get to the thousand or two thousand dollar question, then they move on to the next category. Arthur Chu was not like that. He would jump all over the board, he would go fishing right off the bat for the daily doubles, try to get those out of the way, whether he won the money or he tried to take those away from the other player's ability to win that money and to overtake him in the game. And this movie almost plays like that insofar as it moves all over the place. But yet, I think, to your point, it does leave some questions still on the board. That's an excellent analogy, Mike. Why, well, thank you. <laughs> I just came up with that right now, too. So I do remember back in the day watching Jeopardy. Occasionally, there would be a player who did sort of go at things random, but uh, it wasn't that often. And... I'll just uh, the very first issue I had with this film is they said he was an arrogant player, and I didn't see that in any of the clips they showed, other than him just choosing screens and categories apparently at random. I didn't see any arrogance. I didn't see what was making people so mad, other than the fact that maybe because he was Asian, and the film does deal with that. Absolutely, it confronts that head on, but I don't see the arrogance that they were that they were talking about. They do have the clip of him just betting $5 because he doesn't necessarily know it. And I think that kind of stuff would piss people off. Also, I think the other thing that made people mad was kind of in part him jumping around in the categories. It would confuse viewers and the other players as much as it <laughs> you know, was, was uh, his strategy. He was actually taking pointers from Watson. I don't know if you remember reading about this in the news, but Watson, the supercomputer, played on Jeopardy years ago. He played against Ken Jennings, and I can't mm. remember the other contestant. And that was the great one where <laughs> Watson beat the living shit out of these guys. And <laughs> it was fantastic in the uh, final Jeopardy. Over to Ken Jennings now. 18,200 going in. Bram Stoker is what we're looking for, and we find... Who is Stoker? I, for one, welcome our new computer overlord. <laughs> Who are three people who have never been in my kitchen? I didn't know that, and I kind of wish that uh, they would have gotten into the Watson thing, because it does start out as this Jeopardy documentary. Well, not Jeopardy documentary, but Arthur Chu as Jeopardy contestant documentary, and become something else. But I would have liked to have known more about the strategy, the his history with the show. I mean, I don't even know how long he was on. It seemed like he was on a, obviously he was on a winning streak, but did that go on for days, weeks, months? I have no idea. The film doesn't tell me that. 
No, there are some facts and figures that would probably help out with that kind of stuff. And yeah, I can see if he had explained, because I, I talk later on, we'll play an interview with the filmmakers, uh, Wigu and Scott Drucker. And they asked me about how I initially perceived, uh, Arthur Chu. And I let them know that when I first saw him, I didn't like him. I think I was much like a lot of the people in the audience who were just like, who is this guy coming in and jumping all over the board? And then after I heard an interview with him where he explained his basically game theory and that he was taking from Watson and doing it that way, and then also gave me a little bit more of his personality, I was mm-hmm. like, okay. The very first thing I did when I got the call to be on Jeopardy was... I sat down in front of my computer and Googled Jeopardy strategy, and I started reading what came up. And I didn't really have to do that much work. Jeopardy's been around for 30 years. There's people at this website, the J Board, who talk about Jeopardy strategy. There's the J Archive, where all the clues from all the past games have been compiled by fans. And Keith Williams does a blog, The Final Wager, that I pretty much used as you know, my tutorial for how to wager in Final Jeopardy. So the information's just it's all out there. It's just a matter of making use of it. What do you think when people call you a villain, when people root against you? You seem like a nice kid to me. I think some of it is in, in jest. Um, I think a lot of it is in jest, and I don't mind you know, being the heel, as they call it, in wrestling, waiting for someone to take me down. I think some people actually are offended, and my response to them would just be, it's a game and we're playing for real money. So I understand if you find... I understand if you find me an unpleasant person or find me unpleasant to watch. I, my feelings are a little bit hurt by that, but ultimately, you know, it's it's ten thousand dollars or more every time you win a game of Jeopardy. And my primary concern up there was taking home the money for me and my wife. What's weird to me is that the first person to do this was Chuck Forrest in 1985, which was season two of the Alex Trebek version of Jeopardy. That's when I was one year old. <laughs> So it's, it's come up over and over again. Watson, the computer, did it, and those were hardly obscure games. There were news stories all over the place about what Watson did. There were news stories about Roger Craig. It seems like people do it and it generates some attention, and then people forget about it again. So it's one of those issues that just keeps coming up. The whole thing of him kind of being almost this representative for nerd culture or critic of nerd culture I mean, I think that's obviously where the heart of the movie lies, or at least that's where I think that it lies. And I think they just use Jeopardy as an entree into that world because it's tough for, I think it's tough for an outsider to kind of figure that world out. Like for me, I mean, they talk a lot about Gamergate in this documentary and I really knew nothing and maybe I still don't know a whole lot, but I really was on the outskirts of Gamergate and just was like, what is this? It just seems like a bunch of white guys getting really whiny and really mad because girls want to play on their turf. <laughs> Basically, that's that's it. Oh, okay. <laughs> that's that's it. And it, yeah, I don't play video games, but I've, I have followed Gamergate the news just because I think it's, it's really interesting, kind of the same way that that whole female Ghostbusters thing was such a ridiculously big deal last year. It's the same kind of thing. Misogyny coming out of 
nowhere, I guess. I guess the anonymity of the internet allows these people to just rail against show their true colors or, you know, let the, the venom that they have in it just in them just come out. And I think that that's one very interesting thing that they do up front in the film is showing the tweets of people saying terrible, terrible things to Arthur Chu. And it does include the Twitter user's name. I assume they haven't changed those for the film. People wishing him ill, people wishing him dead, people wishing his wife to die and for what that's that's the thing it's like because he's good at jeopardy because he's asian because he's an asian that's good at jeopardy you know they don't really answer it but that's okay because those people's venom and hatred is it's just not really it's not justified now if there's not one thing that's triggering them it's just that's that's who they are you know we talked about uh, how it jumps across the board so to speak I think initially one of the things that they say first is that he is unemployable or often unemployed and they don't get into that. They don't mention that at all. In fact, we do see him at work and we do see him talking about how he would like to not have a job, how he would like to just be a full-time writer, journalist, whatever. But I wanted to know what what's the story there. And also they introduce him several times as a comedian. We don't see anything about him that I think is considered comedy. In some of the public speaking things we see him do, he makes a couple of, I wouldn't say jokes, but you know, icebreakers that you do in uh, public speech to get the audience on your side. But if he's a comedian, we never see evidence of that either. So there are little things like that throughout the whole film that just threw me off a bit. I think it kept me at a, a bit of an arm's length. And I feel also like the documentary assumed I knew a little bit about Arthur Chu, even though I know, knew nothing about him. And I, embarrassingly, I'll admit that it wasn't until halfway that uh, the film was done that I realized the title itself is referring to Jeopardy. <laughs> I didn't, Don't feel I didn't bad. notice it. Yeah, I didn't notice it until someone else in the film pointed that out. <laughs> yeah. Don't feel bad. I also missed that. And and I approached the filmmakers to say, hey, send me a copy of your documentary, Who is Arthur Chu? This sounds really fascinating. It, it went by me as well. Yeah, it wasn't until that moment in the film where I got it. And then I was like, oh, that's very clever. <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense. But yes. I, I like it. It's, it's kind of subtle because it doesn't hit you in the face over, you know, over and over and over. It's it's uh, it's clever. Have you ever run across the term inscrutable Asian? <laughs> no. That is a term that I mean, if you go out and you Google it, you'll come across usually like TV tropes or it's either inscrutable Asians or inscrutable Oriental. And of course, I don't really like mm -hmm. to use Oriental to refer to people. I refer to my rug as Oriental, nope. but not people as Oriental. <laughs> that is one of these uh, tropes or, or uh, stereotypes is a better word uh, about uh, Asian people where it is this whole idea of these you know, you don't necessarily know what's going on behind that facade. You know, oh my gosh, they have those. And I, 
I hope people take this the right way because I'm I'm being a, a horrible person right now. They've got those slanty eyes, and you can't really see what their eyes are doing. You can't really tell what's going on in their head, and so you just don't really know. And they're so quiet all the time, and they're always probably scheming about things. You know, that's kind of that that trope of like you don't know who this Asian person is. I mean. The, that was one of the things I had a real problem with when it came to uh, Batman v Superman last year was they had an inscrutable Asian character, the um, uh, I think it was Lex Luthor's assistant, who he ends up killing in the film for some reason. Oh, yeah, I barely remember that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Well, she was a barely <laughs> memorable character. So, and that's the the thing with a lot of these characters, you don't know what's going on. They usually an inscrutable Asian if he's not. Um, you know, serving you tea in a coffee house or something or a, a Chinese restaurant, you don't really notice they fade into the background like crazy or they'll be a master assassin, you know. So <laughs> and that's the thing when it comes to uh, Arthur Chu is I think that uh, he was presented or people took him as this inscrutable Asian person. And that's one of those those stereotypes that I think is still with us today is that we um that that some people will look at an asian person and just like really not understand what's going on with them and i think that's one of those like kind of ways to shut people down and that's what it seems like so much of this documentary is about is about trying to shut down people who aren't the white male person anybody who has an opinion who isn't white male just needs to to be quiet and not talk at all and that's yeah. really what it feels like is coming through in this uh, loud and clear. Yeah, absolutely. Some of the tweets that he gets suggest that, you know, as much. I mean, they, they say it without saying it explicitly. Yeah. Absolutely. Every once in a while, a student will come up to me and ask, Senor Chang, why do you teach Spanish? <laughs> they say it just like that. Why do you teach Spanish? <clears throat> Why you? Why not Matt? Why not photography? Why not martial arts? I mean, surely it must be in my nature to instruct you in something that's ancient and secret, like, oh, building a wall that you can see from outer space. Well, I'll tell you why I teach Spanish. It is none of your business. Okay, and I don't want to have any conversations about what a mysterious, inscrutable man I am. <laughs> I am a Spanish genius. In Espanol, my nickname is El Tigre Chino. Because my knowledge will bite her face off. So don't question Senor Chang or you'll get bit. The way this film gets into race is, I think, a very the most fascinating part about it, because he's not it's it's strange that he's sort of the way I read it. He it was not a platform he sought, but once he got notoriety from Jeopardy, once people knew his name through that, he just sort of coasted on it. And use that as sort of to like, to, as he says, be the angry, does he say angry nerd or 
angry Asian. I don't remember, but it's like he th- that was his way of capitalizing to cashing in. Whereas some people would go on a reality show or you know start a fashion line or whatever to get their 15 minutes out of it. He decided to start talking about race online, and uh, the way he does it, it's, it's very interesting. And it was not what I expected either. That's that's one of the things about the film that did throw me is that it just it's sort of a whiplash moment. You know, it goes from this to this, and there's no, I would say, easy transition. I think they might try to ease you possibly into it just with that counter of his Twitter followers going up. But you're right. There is not necessarily that because he was a writer in these things before the Jeopardy appearance. So I think we need a little bit more background on that kind of stuff before we got into the Jeopardy, because that did give him a, let's say a taller pulpit from which Mm -hmm. to, to speak. And it amplified his voice quite a bit, uh, which is interesting that, you know, it, it's Twitter and, and the blogosphere, but yet it is a, a voice. It really helped him get his message across to more people and then also spur more people to hate him because he's, he's critiquing this culture that, uh, propagates these things like Gamergate, like the hatred to uh, a female Ghostbusters movie. And just to me, that really helped, you know, in a larger political sphere, it seems like the people who have become unbridled and uh, who are able to uh, speak their mind um, or what it, I, I wouldn't necessarily consider it a mind, but who are able to, um, come out and just spew garbage everywhere that feels like the political climate that helped put us in the state where we're at today absolutely yeah i agree who is arthur chu helps speak to such a larger picture that i don't think it can necessarily contain all of that stuff within its running time and i i so i can see where you're coming from with these critiques I think that there's a lot of great stuff in there. I don't think it'd be fair to Arthur Chu to to make him be the the locus of all of this stuff that's going on, but I think that it helps open up so many discussions about so many things, about race, about gender, about nerd culture, about racism, that just it's just a, 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 a firebrand, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, too, on the some of the the nerd culture section seeing him speak to a room full of people and he's very passionate about what he's saying and he's tackling big issues and they're serious and some of the cuts to the audience are of people wearing pokemon costumes or something right <laughs> it's just it's such an odd uh you know uh matchup of visuals and and uh dialogue of <laughs> it's just i don't know that that struck me as funny no totally and it's hard for me i remember when i think it was uh the like two star wars films ago and there was this whole outcry about people weren't going to be able to cosplay in the theaters <laughs> and it was just like it, it pushes me to the limit when it comes to like I mean, it's almost a First Amendment issue where it's just like, yes, 
I respect that that line from Voltaire. You know, I, I may not agree with what you're saying, but I'll fight to the death in order for you to say it. Yep. Well, it's like, I don't necessarily agree that cosplay is the thing to do, but I guess I really have to bite the bullet and say that if it was a haircut or a particular you know, band on a t-shirt or something, and when I was in high school, I'd be really pissed off if somebody were to tell, well, somebody told my friend who had you know pink hair, sorry, you can't come to work anymore until you change your hair color. And it's like, okay, I cosplay... I guess it's along those same lines, but not really. But I guess I really have to stand behind it, and it's just so tough for me to do that. <laughs> yeah, that's not something I'll be I'll ever be doing. No, uh, even on Halloween. You mentioned haircut. I think it's interesting too that uh, the way the film starts out, the first sit down interview we get with Arthur Chu is he's in a white t shirt. Looks like he's probably been wearing for a couple of days, and his hair is messed up, and it it looks just like he has been on a you know <laughs> twenty hour nap. I don't know, and just rolled out of bed and started talking. I wondered if I did wonder right off the bat if that was intentional of him showing him like that because they're presenting you with an image of this guy, and they're almost asking you to not like him right off the bat just so that, you know, then they can introduce all the political elements. And so you, before you, before you know who he is and what he believes and where he's coming from, they just give you sort of this image of here's a young lazy guy. You know, he could be your average millennial. Uh, look, he doesn't even care enough to dress up for, a documentary about him. Uh, so I do. I did wonder if that was intentional on the part of the filmmakers, or if that's just Arthur. And it's hard to say because throughout the movie, you see him dressed up, you see him dressed down, and there doesn't appear to be any rhyme or reason or pattern. Again, I guess he he plays that the way he plays Jeopardy. It's just <laughs> choose choose one at random and go with it. Well, and that's the thing. I don't want to say that Arthur Chu has Asperger's or anything. I will not say that. But it's interesting that so many people, uh, so many nerds or people who identify as nerds are kind of on the spectrum. And yes. just that whole idea of there's a, there's a theme of not necessarily Arthur Chu's mental health, but of the mental health of the people who are in that culture. And just the way that they might react to different things as well. I mean, just so, like I said, there are so many issues that this movie kind of brings up or that could be sparked from this. It's almost like I, I, I feel like this is the type of movie that should have dis- discussion groups set up afterwards, you know, where you can just yeah. kind of go around in a circle and talk about your experiences with this kind of stuff because it just, it feels like there's so many things to discuss and, um, I'm I'm glad that they don't give us or don't try to give us every single answer that they do leave those things still on the board. But yeah, it would be nice if they went a little bit further, maybe. But I, I can't say if I can see them. You know, if they chose one area to focus on, would that make a better documentary than focusing on all of these different areas? You just brought up another one too that the film 
introduces and then let's go. And that's where he is watching TV news comes about a mass shooting and, uh, he tweets about, there's no such thing as a mental illness where it just makes you start killing people or something like that. Uh, something that effect. And, if I recall, the film uses that as a springboard then to talk about misogyny because it was the the guy who went on a spree based upon being rejected by women throughout his life. Uh, but the mental illness part just falls by the wayside. I thought they were going to go down that, that, that rabbit hole uh, a bit since they did make a point to show him doing that tweet that directly addresses mental illness. And it doesn't necessarily bring up the whole... You know, the, the idea of tweeting itself and just having that microphone in front of you 24-7 where you can just spout something out like that. And, of course, going back to our uh, our president, I mean, that's the thing that he loves to do is just <laughs> spout this stuff off with no evidence, with no rhyme, with no reason. And it's interesting to see Arthur Chu doing his thing and you wonder how much thought does he put behind doing something like that? Is he going to piss off the wrong people? Is he a hundred percent correct when he puts something out there like that? So it just makes you question everything. And maybe it makes you question the tweets that you put out and the whole idea of, is it right that because I have a microphone in front of me 24 seven, should I use it? And should I use it in this way? Yeah, excellent. And later in the film, you even see, uh, I think it's after the Gamergate speech or panel he's on, where he immediately receives some tweets about that and he starts answering them back. Right. And I'm sure it's been edited, but it seems like it's in real time the way it's presented. Uh, and it seems like Arthur just is not giving thought to what he's putting out. And he, instead of the more intelligent, discussions that we've seen him do previously in the film he writes back to one of the people like fuck you with a thousand fucks until you can be fucked no more or something to that effect <laughs> and it's like that's not constructive that's not going to in the <laughs> in the war it's just throwing more fuel onto the fire nor is it even a good burn yeah that too <laughs> and i do i think it's telling too that they you know, it's a, it's a recurring thing in the film where it shows how many Twitter followers he has and how many social shares these articles he writes gets. But uh, he gets off Twitter at some point, and they make note of that. And more power to him for doing that. I I can't stand Twitter. I got off of it myself through because of bad experiences of just people starting shit just to start shit, basically, right. and not having like you said, evidence or good reason to just doing it, to do it just to be mean, to be cruel. And, uh, it, it feels good to live life without Twitter. It's great. I feel horrible telling you this, but he is still on Twitter. <laughs> so we got back on Twitter, huh? See, that's why we need a sequel. I didn't even realize he was on Twitter or the amount of social following he had until much after his appearance on Jeopardy. It wasn't until I was watching, I think it was a VH1 show. I feel bad I didn't do my research, but it was a show called The Internet Ruined My Life. <laughs> and they they had things like, remember that woman who tweeted, um, 
I'm getting on a flight to Africa. I hope I don't get AIDS. Oh, yes. no, I won't because I'm white or whatever that was. <laughs> she was a journalist, I believe, right? By the time the plane landed, she didn't have a job anymore. And there was yep. that whole, like, the hashtag was something like she's still in the air or something like that. That was one of the stories. There was a story about this uh, girl who got doxxed and was receiving all of these death threats and stuff. And Arthur Chu actually showed up on that episode. He was, I think he was a friend of this girl's and he was on there and he was talking about just the, you know, the Twitter universe and all of these things. And I was just like, Oh wow, that that's interesting. Cause he just kind of out of nowhere. Like I said, I didn't know he was this internet celeb. I just knew him from jeopardy. And when he showed up on this documentary, I was like, Oh, all right, this this is uh, out of context for me. And that's when I went out and I looked and I was like, oh, he's out here on Twitter. He's got so many followers. I just never think to actually look up the people who I see on, on game shows that often. I mean, every once in a while, I'll see somebody and I'll be like, a contestant will be talking about a book that they wrote or a movie they worked on. And I'll look up a little bit more information. And that's about it. Though I do have to say... That now I am a follower of Arthur Chu to see what he's writing about. And I'm also a follower of Ken Jennings on Twitter. And for folks uh, who are on Twitter, not like you, Rod, I would say <laughs> follow Ken Jennings. He's very, very amusing. And I was afraid and talk about stereotyping people. But I, I knew that he was from Utah. So yeah. I was just like, oh, he's from Utah. He's probably very politically conservative. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's a horrible stereotype. And uh, he's not. He's not politically conservative at all. He's he's always given it to, to Donald Trump. So I'm just like, okay. And he, he gives it to him in hilarious ways and has very entertaining tweets. So I would recommend following Ken Jennings out there. And I will link to his Twitter handle in the show notes for the show. And he's very funny as a recurring guest on Doug Benson's Doug Loves Movies podcast. Oh, nice. He's on there quite a bit, and he's very good at the games, duh. But, <laughs> yeah, he tells some some jokes that uh, you wouldn't expect from Ken Jennings. This term for a long-handled gardening tool can also mean an immoral pleasure seeker. Ken. What's a hoe? No. <laughs> Whoa. Teach you that in school in Utah, huh? Al, what's a rake? A rake is right. And we'll await the Ken Jennings documentary. Yeah, hopefully one of those will come <laughs> along one of these days. I would definitely be uh, entertained with him. You know, I have to say that there was another uh, Jeopardy villain, quote-unquote, and uh, his name was Colby, and I'm trying to remember his last name, and I did not like him at all. And it, again, it was one of these, like, just the way that he would hold his face and hold his mouth and just be kind of flip about answers and just seemed to be, I don't know. He just seemed so full of himself. He ended up going on to um, Curtis Armstrong and um, Robert Carradine's show, King of the Nerds. Oh and, yeah. I remember that. And he actually turned out to be a pretty nice guy. And at least in so far as what the show showed us to the point where I was like, okay, I don't don't dislike Colby anymore. He seems like a decent <laughs> dude. And that's one of the things, though, is that I really I'm a horrible person when it comes to snap judgments of people and just prejudging everyone. And 
I think that that's something, again, that this documentary shows is that I, I admitted it before. I didn't like Arthur when I first saw him on Jeopardy, and it took actually hearing his voice and hearing him talk about himself for me to understand him and to give him another chance. After that, I became an Arthur Chu fan, and I think I really need to do that with other things in life, too. I need to not be so judgmental, and I think that that's something that this documentary definitely helps with. Yeah, the stamp judgments thing is is all through this movie. I think it does that a lot. The way it introduces like his wife or other people in his family. And again, I, how much of that is the filmmakers doing, or is that just accidental? I don't know, but it does it does cast them in a light that makes you think this about them, only then to flip the script and and introduce this fact about them. You know, they do it with the father. They do it with uh, the the brother. It's it's all it's all through it. It's it's very interesting. Uh, the last thing I'll say about this the film, and again, I already mentioned it, but it bears repeating: is that very last very last piece of the movie. I don't know why they just left you like that. Why that wasn't addressed at all? Uh, I, I, that to me is like. Oh, I don't know. Cutting Raiders of the Lost Ark out before the the Ark of the Lost Covenant is open. <laughs> you know, it's almost, it's it's like a cliffhanger in a way. Although I don't think you're going to get the resolution, but it's just such a strange way to end the film. I thought. Well, yeah, that's when Who Is Arthur Chew to Electric Boogaloo comes around. <laughs> exactly. Still chewing. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break and play an interview that I did with Wegu and Scott Drucker, the co-directors of Who is Arthur Chu? And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages. Are you tired of stubborn understains in your gusset? Do you suffer from a peculiar disease which only an expensive series of pills with appalling side effects can prolong? Do you long for a professional movie website and podcast with a sense of humor, insight, and passion that hasn't yet fallen under the thrall of the big studios and basically turned into a soulless marketing hub? Well, we can at least do the third thing. Head on over to AfterMovieDiner.com for all your genre film needs, Americana, movie podcasts, comedy, incredibly large trousers, by fans for fans without added salt, and relatively free of dripping. Our podcast is also available on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever podcasts are found. The After Movie Diner. Come on in, won't you? Hey fans, this is Reverend Scott. Just want to tell you about Outside the Cinema. Great company. They review cult films, any cult film, every cult film. And it's something you should tune into. So if you get a chance, go to the website, look these guys up, Outside the Cinema, and find out what the hot cult films are today, what's going on. These guys are right on the cutting edge of reviewing cult movies. If you're a cult member, or you want to be a cult member, you're thinking about being a cult member, your mom's a cult member, your dad's a cult member, your damn mother-in-law's a cult member, tune in outside the cinema, baby, and you'll find out what's going on. Reverend Scott, and that's out. You guys look like... What do they look like, Jimmy? Dorks. <laughs> they look like a couple of dorks. If you're looking for dorky, geek-filled content where you can nerd out over movies, television, comic books, and so much more, then you've come to the right place. The In the Mouth of Darkness podcast is bringing geek-related content to you three times a week. Hey everyone, I'm the Turtle Dork here at Mod. On Mondays, we drop our Weekend Dork episode, which is a recap of sorts, where we discuss the most pertinent geek-related things we did in the previous week. 
I'm Wife Dork, and on Wednesdays we drop our homework cast episode. Each week the dorks take turns choosing a movie for the month's chosen dork to watch and review. Like Heat, or Star Trek II, or Green Room. Howdy, I am the Mouth Dork, and finally, on everyone's favorite day of the week, we drop our Fistful Friday episode. Each Fistful episode is basically a top five list related to movies, comics, or some other geek-related topic. Because we all know at the end of the week, we need a little fist of Xander Cage. Hey, and I'm the Disco Dork. In addition to our regularly scheduled programming, we have special guests, film festival and comic convention coverage, interview episodes, and more. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Podbean, YouTube, and other podcast platforms. Just search In the Mouth of Darkness or It Modcast, where we are for the promotion and progression of geek culture. Scott Drucker, and I am a filmmaker and co-director of Who is Arthur Chu, along with We Goo. Hi, my name is Wee Goo. I am the co-director of Who is Arthur Chu. I'm a filmmaker who works mostly in documentaries, but also narrative film. And Wee, how did you decide to become a filmmaker? It definitely wasn't something I knew I wanted to do, like, when I was five. You know, it wasn't like I was born into it. My dad is a visual artist, so I always grew up with art and drawing. And um, when I uh, was growing up in Vancouver, Canada, my parents, who are who are new immigrants basically worked you know like 16 hours a day so I was left at home and I watched a lot of movies um, and TV so that was my first sort of foray into a love of cinema and um, you know I watched a lot of Asian cinema and that's how I fell in love with filmmaking and storytelling and when I was in college um, I took a class that was you know make a short film and I you know cast a bunch of non actors and told a story that was based on a real life event and I really just enjoyed that process. Um, and then I went to USC here in Los Angeles to learn more about directing actors, screenwriting, but I always had a, a strong interest in documentaries and, and a passion for it because it's so immediate, it's, you know, dealing with real people and you're interacting with them and filming them, um, you know, in an immediate way. So um, that's, you know, something that I always continued from my thesis film until now. How about you, Scott? For me, it started off just watching a lot of ski and skate films. And there was a few that were more documentary based and it kind of really inspired me. And also this influenced my voice and kind of the way I saw the world. Um, and then, you know, I think from there it was, I went, I went to uh, undergraduate school, not for film, just for English and teaching. And I was experimenting a little bit with film then. And um, once I kind of transitioned into a teaching role, I realized, you know, teaching is a great way to inspire people and influence uh, the way they see the world. But it, you only really reach like your small circle, like the people you're immediately um, surrounded by. And I just felt like film was a way for me to reach a larger audience and for me to kind of have a voice um, that went beyond my own little uh, social circle. Now, we said that she was very much into making documentaries, uh, had made some other films as well, I'm sure, uh, especially during college. How about you, Scott? What were some of your early films like? You know, I think all my films have had at some at some point had to do with identity. I used to kind of uh, experiment with films on Judaism, uh, just people who identified as Jews or had some sort of transformation um, one of the things I worked on at USC was this documentary called Stay on the Grind, which was about a community in Long Beach of skateboarders who were basically just fighting for access and fighting for this uh, right to be skateboarders, essentially, and to not be vilified for that. And this was their uh, this was their chance to have a voice and for a chance for self-expression and kind of their own little quarter 
of freedom in a very tough neighborhood, essentially. And it was, a, you know, and they were a community and it really brought them all together. And so from that, I, filmed, I worked a little bit with that, just filming it as a camera operator. And then we did a music video as well um, with Kira One and Omega Watts that incorporated some of the documentary filming that we had done with the skateboarders in Long Beach. We, how does a woman who is raised in Vancouver end up meeting a guy who was raised in Chicago? And how do you then decide to make this film together? Uh, well, Scott and I went to USC together, but I actually didn't know him. <laughs> like, we didn't know each other. Um, but I heard about him and he heard about me. So the first time I heard about Scott was uh, basically there's a documentary class at USC that people take if you want to make a doc. And I heard that he was a DP for a one of the documentaries about these motorcyclists who ride in the, these dangerous roads in the mountains um, just outside of Los Angeles. And I heard that he had taken, basically he took like one of the school's largest cameras and was just riding on the back of this motorcycle with these guys and like filming them. Um, this was before, you know, the age of, like, GoPros. And basically, he got into huge trouble, and he became sort of notorious, and the whole career of that film became not notorious for breaking the rules at USC. Um, and I just thought that was actually, uh, that was really cool. Like, because, you know, USC, we're going to film school. It's a very bureaucratic environment, and, you know, in some ways, like, I thought it was just cool that these, these kids just, you know, did what they creatively thought, uh, you know, was fun, though maybe it was not the smartest thing. So that was like my first impression of Scott. And then I think, Scott, you can tell your side of the story. Like, I think you watched my thesis film or something, and then we kind of got connected after that. Yeah, so I basically, like, we, we had the same sound mixer, essentially, uh, for our, both our thesis films. And when I would brought her on board for mine, she said, oh, I did this film, this thesis film, you should watch it, you can get a sense of my work. And I watched it and I totally was lost in terms of the film and like wasn't paying attention to sound at all because I was very moved and captivated by um, Wee's thesis film, which has a lot to do with her own personal story uh, as an immigrant and an artist. And I just felt like that was a voice that would be added to the film that would make the film richer and stronger and just give it more depth than, you know, what I initially had going into it, um, which, of course, was based solely upon my reaction of this person of Arthur on Jeopardy. And uh, it just kind of gave us a chance to really, you know, work with these yeah. other diff different perspectives. And, and yeah. I think I also, I just also, in, the, in our initial talks and sort of communications about the film, we talked about, you know, the style and, like, what films we liked and different things. And I feel like immediately we understood that we had a pretty similar aesthetic palette, I guess, um, mm -hmm. for film and, and what kind of films we like and our interest um in identity in in the struggle of an outsider and i think we connected um definitely on those levels so you know and we both um had shot films before like when it, whether it's our own work or for other people we both had camera equipment we both really loved you know looking through the lens as one of the modes of being a filmmaker so um, that was something that was actually just practically really great because that meant we could immediately just jump in, you know, and after we got Arthur's permission to start filming with him and just, you know, start like creating these visual pieces, you know, of the story that we could then start making into a film. So the, the start of that journey was actually pretty easy because we both had th those kinds of 
again, like Scott and I, we, we come from very different backgrounds, obviously, but I think we definitely understand what it's like to have suffered some of these sort of traumas that Arthur suffered as a kid of being marginalized, of being on the outskirts of some kind of mainstream, very hierarchical and very powerful like community. And we definitely felt as outsiders growing up in that sense. Um, and then having like an aesthetic taste that also is not necessarily uh, the mainstream and not necessarily what everybody, you know, would pay millions of dollars for. Like we're not interested in making, you know, superhero movies. You know, we're interested in the very gray areas, the very nuanced, like ambivalent, ambiguous um, areas and, and, and um, sort of stories. So we connected on those levels. I can kind of take it from what you're saying that you see him on Jeopardy first. What is it about him that appeals to you? And how do you decide then I'm going to make a documentary about this guy? Definitely when he first went viral, you know, Arthur has this polarized, had this polarizing effect on Jeopardy um, and you either loved him or hated him. But I think the common thread was that he was a Jeopardy villain. And it, it just sort of intrigued me that response that he was getting on social media and how quickly people were like decided like what they felt about Arthur, you know, and they painted this picture of him one way or another. It was like very black and black and white. Right. And so I, I just, I thought to myself, there has to be more to this person. I really want to know who he is. I want to know what drives him. Why did he go on Jeopardy in the first place? Um, and just the, the fact that this response was so immediate and based on just 20 minutes of television leads me to believe there's a lot more happening there. And I, I've, I've talked about it a little bit as this underdocumented cultural moment, because I think there's, you know, there's a lot more to, I, I'm not saying this very well, but there's more to it than just uh, Arthur being, you know, loved or hated based on the way he plays Jeopardy. We did Scott come to you and say, hey, I want to make a documentary about this dude on Jeopardy, or how did he present this to you? Uh, I think he basically emailed me and shared an article that Arthur had written. I mean, he told me about this guy, Arthur. He's blowing up right now on the internet. He became this virus celebrity. There's people who also at that time had started to uh, rally behind him, especially the Asian American community, and was seeing him sort of as a Jeremy Lin figure. I don't know if you're familiar with like the whole Lin sanity phenomenon. Asian American underdog who comes in and sort of subverts this American institution, whether that's basketball or, or Jeopardy. But Scott sent me a link that, of an article that Arthur wrote, and I was just really surprised by that um, because it, it was about misogyny in nerd culture and um, the depiction of women in video games and how messed up it all was. Um, and then he talked about himself and his own, you know, past as, as this angry nerd who used to, you know, objectify women who very much participated in this so-called rape culture, but you know, he's starting to look upon himself and, and realize these things that he hadn't realized before. Um, and so immediately, I, I think we we both realized, and we, as we were talking about it, we both realized this guy is much more than just this game show icon. He's a guy who's very much, very relatable to us because we're also, you know, pretty much around the same age as Arthur in our early 30s. And we're dealing with a lot of these things that he's talking about where we're looking at society and we're like, you know, wait a minute, this is actually, you know, the cards are actually stacked against us. Like the system is not fair. And this is why things are messed up, you know, and this is why we have inequality. This is why we have these people who are suffering in our society and that, you know, no one seems to give a crap about. So I think from there, we realize that he's, he's trying to go on this journey of self-transformation at the same time as trying to affect positive change in the world. That in itself is a very sort of tenuous, difficult endeavor. So 
um, I think we, we came to the conclusion that it would be a really interesting journey for us to go on and to see where it leads. So where was Arthur at when you guys made this decision? Had his Jeopardy run already finished, or was he still playing at the time? And then, of course, I know they pre-tape all this stuff. So where was he at in, quote-unquote, real life at this moment when you made this decision and and approached him about this? He had finished his initial run. I I basically wrote him an email and just explained why I wanted to make the documentary and why I thought it was important. And he couldn't really talk about it because they were still – like all the episodes hadn't aired, even though he had filmed them all. But he knew he was going to be on the tournament of champions. So there's this whole other Jeopardy block that we like was going to be ahead of him. And so it gave us like a very clear visceral kind of thing that we could film. And we didn't have to worry initially we didn't have to worry too much like how are we gonna, you know, bring these tweets to life, how are we gonna bring these articles to life and some of these more nuanced themes. It was more just, okay, Arthur's going to LA, he's gonna participate in the tournament of champions, and we could kind of track this psychological journey as he prepares. And he was still writing at the time as well. So like we, we were basically, it was still a lot happening. You know, he was playing in Jeopardy and he was uh, a f- frequent contributor to the Daily Beast. And that's where the, the, the article about misogyny and nerd culture came out. So he was still very active. He was also working full time still as a insurance analyst um, out of Cleveland. It was a very, very kind of like in between time for him where he, had, he still had like all these things going on basically. <laughs> And he was still trying to figure out, you know, uh, necessarily what he wanted his next step to be. So that's when we started really filming him. Well, what was his initial reaction to you guys approaching him and saying, we want to make this documentary about you? Well, he was, he was very supportive because I, for him, I think it was an opportunity to get his name out there. You know, he was trying to be a public speaker. He was an author and all these various things that he was essentially putting himself in the limelight. I think we had like a shared kind of vision in a, in a lot of ways is that we were trying to say something, you know, with our work, just like Arthur was. So, yeah, he was on board at, with throughout the whole entire film and we didn't really have any issues with that. And he would always be sending us stuff. Hey, I'm speaking at this university. You know, I'm going to be a gamer gay. You guys should come. That was definitely helpful in terms of the process of making the film. You said that he was kind of seen as a Jeopardy villain. And just for folks who may not remember Arthur and his appearance on Jeopardy, why did people think that he was such a villain? Why was he treated that way? That was my question before I even said making the film. <laughs> that kind of you know, brought me to the to the Twitterverse. But it's essentially the way he played was um, a little more aggressive. He jumped around the board. You know, he would get in these kind of spats with Alex Trebek that were controversial because, you know, you don't argue with Alex Trebek. That's just going against the establishment. It's something you don't do. It's it's kind of these breaking these unwritten rules, you know, and they call it like a gentleman's game. So you're supposed to be really polite. And you got this brash guy who's going on this game show, an Asian American who, you know, they there's a lot of there's a lot of stereotypes going into that as well. That just surprised a lot of people and took him aback. Yeah, I think that the idea that he broke those unwritten rules, that was kind of the key to fuel the online rage storm. At the core of it, I think Jeopardy is something, is like an American staple, right? People have been watching it every day of their lives as a kid. You know, they grew up with it. They feel like if they can compete with the contestants, that they're pretty smart too. So it's a validation of their own worth in some ways. And when you have this guy come on and disrupt everything, and who's also an ethnic minority who also looks like, you know, a guy who doesn't care about how he looks, who looks like a quote-unquote nerd. I think it just really shook people to their core of, they felt like their power was somehow taken away by this guy. 
that led to a lot of this kind of rage that followed Arthur. Well, I like that you use Jeopardy kind of as it was in real life as that jumping off point. The name of the documentary is Who is Arthur Chu? And you kind of give that answer within a few minutes. He's the Jeopardy guy. But then the way that you peel back those layers is really what makes this documentary stand out so much. That's something we definitely consciously were trying to do. <laughs> and it's something that also was an evolution because as we were filming with him, you know, we as we spent more time with him, as we talked to, you know, his wife, his family, we realized there were all these other layers and all these things kind of tied together thematically uh, as well. Um, and, and we really wanted to include all those levels in the film. And in some ways, the Jeopardy section sort of uh, action that happened took a backseat. And the a lot of his internal struggles um, was really what we dealt a lot into in the post-production process, in the editing process, when we're putting everything together. Well, yeah, tell me a little bit more about that, how this documentary might have grown and changed organically from original concept to what it ended up being when it premiered in Slam Dance. You know, we kind of witnessed all these these meaningful transformations that have happened in Arthur's life, you know, and the kind of the question of how does Arthur move forward in his fight to do good in the world in spite of all this hate, you know, moved well beyond Jeopardy. And we realized that he faces, he faces a lot of antagonists, you know, and that went beyond just people who are online and people who are on Twitter. I mean, it's his family it's himself. It's his, is, you know, trying to balance this um, relationship. Like how do you balance creating, how do you balance doing good in the world and creating change while also maintaining um, a marriage? And I think it could be a little overwhelming. And that's something that speaks to the gig economy, uh, new millennials, which is, if you want to use that phrase, use that term, there's a lot more going on for Arthur. <laughs> Uh, as we found out as we were filming, basically. It's still a continuing sort of evolution for us is how we think of Arthur in terms of a protagonist of a film and what that means. You know, this idea of a, a, a hero's journey, right? That, you know, again, because we went to film school, we were sort of indoctrinated in that whole idea of a hero's journey of act one, act two, act three, you know, Going into it, we definitely we definitely admired him. Like both Scott and I, we definitely admired Arthur for what he was doing um, and what he was trying to do. And as we were filming, like as Scott mentioned, we were witnessing these sort of key moments in his life where we see things changing. And, and in some ways, you know, he, it was difficult and he, he, he couldn't quite manage balancing his relationship with his wife and trying to create this new career for himself as a writer. Uh, and interface with the internet uh, at the same time. So we saw all these, these things happening, and we saw sort of his really tenuous and conflicted relationship with his father, who who kind of left him a very toxic legacy that he was still trying to work through. And even though he could intellectually think about how those things were negative or bad, you, it was still it's hard for him to change his behavior or change, um, you know, his mental or emotional state, you know, living through living his life. So, you know, like, and, and we, we didn't, we decided not to shy away from that in the film, in the sense of we, we didn't want to make a piece that was about this guy who had triumphed, you know, at the end, like a happy ending, like, oh, he got over everything that he had set out, you know, to face. And now he's a hero in the traditional sense of 
you know, like, let's say a superhero, you know, this guy is a hero. He's a good guy, you know. I think that, that we wanted to walk that line of good and bad. Right now, it, it, it's just been really interesting listening to the feedback that people have because he's still a very divisive character. And, you know, some people really love him, especially Asian Americans who watch the film and see all of the struggles that they also face. As, as human beings put up there on the big screen, they really empathize with him. And then you have other people who are very dismissive of him, you know, who don't understand what he's, you know, where he's coming from and basically view him as still as a villain. So I, I think it's really interesting because I think it just makes me feel as a filmmaker that I really, it makes me feel like it's even more important for us to tell stories about these people who are not the stereotypical black and white, good or bad you know, characters that I feel like we're so inundated with in our, you know, mainstream media. And I think that really also affects people and affects our culture, affects our society and the way we view, view ourselves. Um, and it makes our society into this very hierarchical and, and very kind of like winner or loser type of world where there is no mercy for anything in between. And I think all that stuff, you know, all those things that um, where the film goes that are part of Arthur, Arthur's personal journey, it's all corollary to the to the Jeopardy moment, so to speak, you know, because even the idea of him going on Jeopardy in the first place was a result of him assimilating and erasing in a lot of ways his own culture to just, you know, to become American, essentially. And Jeopardy is this iconic game show with American trivia. You have to know a wide variety of things. And that was Arthur's way, essentially, to fit in and to become you know, to feel like he was more accepted into the culture. And so I think that it's, it's just interesting how it's all, it's all correlated in, in one way or another, you know? Yeah, like thematically, I think that's very much part of what we want to explore. That, like, I think in the beginning, we both knew we didn't want to make a typical, like, movie, competition movie where we have, you know, a champion and we celebrate him. You know, it's not that type of film, but I think it is not until now that we realize really what it is that we want we want to say with the film and what we want people to take away from it. I think, I think actually people wanted it to be that in a lot of ways. I think people like game show documentaries. Yeah, and of course. Like we're hoping for that. And I, we're, and we see it as a unique opportunity um, to just take it to a different place, you know, to have a different experience. Yeah. And speak to a whole other audience that has in many ways been thirsting for content that really spoke to them. Like, the, you know, the, you know, people of color, minorities, Asian Americans that, you know, now have, it's not, I think a lot of Asian Americans too, they're like, oh, we want, you know, the big leading roles in Hollywood to be Asian. Yeah, that's important too. But also, I think it's awesome to have independent films that feature stories not of, you know, just the normal, like everyone is white type of reality. So I, I think it's in some ways like really gratifying for us to share this film with those people who really wanted to see this, you know, who, who has a very, this film has had a very deep impact on them and you know it's so as filmmakers too we're learning to deal with you know you can't please everyone like there's going to be people who are who don't understand your film but really it is about uh, savoring those experiences and interactions with people who really get your film and in some ways know that you made it for them you know and that that's really great i think one of the smartest and and most affecting things that you guys did with the documentary was the use of the tweets and those showing up on screen and just this constant chatter of people just trying to tear him down 
over and over and over again. It just made me sick to my stomach every time one of those things would pop up. And I say that as a compliment, even though it was such a horrible feeling to read these terrible things that people are saying about this poor man. Well, it's interesting because I think, Mike, I'm going to put you on the spot here for a second. You you said you didn't like Arthur very much just watching him on Jeopardy, right? Well, there was a period of time because Arthur played, I think, he played for a while. Then there was a break. So like, you know, tournament of champions or, or college champions, all-star Jeopardy, those kind of things. And I heard an interview with him in between that break and when he came back. And just hearing him for some reason and just hearing more about him because he was, I can't say he was inscrutable when he was playing Jeopardy, but I didn't appreciate the way that he did run the board and that he would jump around. And then finally, he explained on this interview, I think it was an NPR interview, just that his whole thing was to fish for those uh, double jeopardies and get them out of the way, whether he knew them or not. He was just taking away that chance for other people to get them. And it just dawned on me finally of how brilliant he was when it came to the gameplay. And also the thing that somebody like me watching at home is I was getting confused because he was jumping from category to category and just that he could jump from category to category and keep up with all of that. It just, I don't know what it was. There was a little light bulb moment for me. And I just said, no, this guy is playing this game so smart and he's got so much because we know he's got a lot going on upstairs because of how many questions he gets, but then that he has the whole strategy as well. I was like, this really sets this guy apart. And then I noticed that he pretty much change the entire way that the game of Jeopardy was played, because then when it came to Tournament of Champions that year, there were a lot of top players who were adopting the Arthur Chu method. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's kind of, you know, the impetus for kind of making the documentary in the first place, is to build a little empathy to not only just humanize these people, but just to explain a little further as to who they are, what their intentions are, you know, what drives them, because I think like, like myself included, and many of us, when we see things in the media, new media's response is to, to, to make a judgment, you know, to like quickly like put things in this box. So like, this is what this is. This is this person, this defines this person. And no one wants to be defined by this one thing. And there is a lot more to it. And there is, and for Arthur, you know, I think at the beginning of the film, we set up not only what he's kind of the backlash and what he's against, but also like why he was doing this in the first place. You know, we give him a chance to kind of have a, have a voice essentially. Yeah, and I think right now, especially the Twitter chatter is still going on. I mean, the Gamergate hordes on on Twitter are still very much talking about Arthur and hating on him. And it, you know, in some ways, after they found out about our film, you know, then they're they're then taking our film and sort of circulating all these hateful comments about Arthur and the film together. And it's it's just really interesting. At first, I was like horrified to see all this kind of hateful stuff still happening but in some ways it's, it's really interesting and it's almost entertaining in a way just to see these people that it's so easy for them to sort of echo each other and they just all live in this one echo chamber where they all agree on this one thing and it's all about spewing out rage and it, it, they don't care they don't care at all about the facts you know they, it's literally like the you know fake news whatever false facts like that's the world they live in and they don't care they literally don't because it's all about emotion. It's all about rage. And that's the only thing they care about in terms of expressing. So 
it's again, it's such a timely thing because I feel like the world we live in right now is, you know, in some ways very dictated by that. And the kind of divisiveness and the divides that we have in our culture, our society, you know, is in many ways, I feel like fueled by this, this ease to shut yourself off from the world and like basically make up the reality that you want and you will have this community online that will sort of echo you. It's very timely in many ways. And I think it, it's just to go off that a little bit. I think it also is a place where people's kind of deepest and darkest fears come out. You know, it's like a, cause you're supposedly anonymous. Right. And so that that's going back to Jeopardy thing. That's where that I had this question is like, well, what does this signify? Like, why is he so polarizing? Why is he the most hated person in, in Jeopardy history history? Like, what is it really? And that, you know, and so it was kind of like a place to investigate a little bit as to uh, this, the whole idea of going viral and what that represents. There are so many things that your film helps to unpack and even just what you were, you were saying, you know, just it's so relevant. I mean, yesterday I read a tweet and I I hate quoting tweets from people, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yesterday I read a a tweet that said, every time an alt-right jackass uses the term SJW, it's a reminder that all this started from boys being mad about video games. (laughs) And it just feels like, the culture, if you can call it culture, of Gamergate has transmogrified into what we are living in 24-7 now. And it, it just that tw- Twitter is ruling our lives, if not our country right now, that that can start a 24-hour news cycle or a multi-month news cycle of just examining <laughs> tweets from the uh, at POTUS. It's one of the saddest things I've ever experienced. Yeah, I know. It's incredible. And I think, um, you know, I was watching some other show, I think it was maybe Vice, that there, people were calling in about why they voted for Trump. And uh, a lot, it was really funny to, not funny, it was just amazing to hear these guys call in and they're saying, you know, I self-identify as a nerd and now this is my time to take back what is mine and that's why I voted for Trump. You know, there's like so much correlation between this Gamergate, like, you know, uh, culture of, you know, we were the ones who were, uh, you know, repressed and now we're it's time for us to take back what is ours and that feeds into that like white supremacist type of um you know ideal as well um i don't know it's been really interesting and in some ways i feel like maybe in some ways it's a little bit hopeful because those people only now have felt this kind of pressure from the rest of society that has you know, in some way evolve to be more diverse and more tolerant of difference. And, and in, in that way, they felt like they were marginalized because they're the last sort of bastion of this pure whiteness uh, or pure maleness, or whatever it is. I don't even know. So now they actually feel this pressure and now they're thinking, no, we need to fight back. So I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping that we'll see how it goes, you know, in the next few years, but I'm hoping that something fruitful will come out of this confrontation in some way well it's just it's just interesting to me that people are are, have had such um a strong response to the film one way or another and much as they did to arthur when he was on jeopardy and when he was writing and it just seems to be polarizing kind of no matter how you look at it and i think the film is in many ways has done that like the people who get it and they we've had essentially we've had a really great response and we uh, premiered at slam dance in park city 
um, which was amazing. And it was a good experience. And it really felt like we were part of a community of filmmakers um, there that kind of had shared visions for what they want to do with their films. And uh, we had one particular person in the audience who stood up and basically said that he, his personal experience was Arthur's experience. And that he it, the almost like the voice behind um, the film was, like a friend that he never had in life. Like that's something that he could, somebody he could relate to. And like a twin almost. Yeah. Like, and make him, um, I don't, I don't know. I don't want to like, I'm trying not to put words in, in this man's mouth, but, um, he, it was just really wonderful to have somebody, um, understand the film and have it resonate with them. And I think since then we've had really successful screenings and premieres. Um, and we've also seen online people kind of who don't understand it, just lash out and make it and give them a renewed platform basically to, you know, to spread false facts and hate basically. <laughs> yeah. You know, like there was this one, a guy who wrote this article on some kind of blog called heat treat or something. And I've heard from others that's very similar to Breitbart, um, where he basically said that our film was funded by Arthur and that it was supposed to be like a, a self-funded puff piece about himself. Um, which is completely false. Like there's all these like completely false things and it just all is used to support their agenda of, you know, hating on Arthur. So yeah, I mean that, that's been the extreme of the reactions. And then, yeah, I like Scott mentioned, we have the other side where, you know, we we screened after uh, slam dance, we screened at Camfest in San Francisco, which is basically the San Francisco Asian American film festival. And it's the largest, uh, Asian American Film Festival in America. Um, and we had a full out screening at an um, Alamo Draft House there. Um, and it was like amazing after watching the film at the end, you can feel like people's emotional energy in the film, in the theater and just this thickness of nuance that people really got it. And the questions that were asked were just, you know, really amazing. And just uh, talk, we talked about, you know, a very subtle themes in the film and, and subtle experiences that you know didn't come out in other environments so that that was really special i guess we're going to be we're going to be at hot dogs at the end of the month um so that will be really interesting to see the uh toronto audience react to this film but i think again for us going to all these festivals and attending screenings has just been a huge learning experience of how this film connects with people and questions people have maybe areas where people don't understand but it's a conversation that has been started right so that that was really great to see yeah and i think we just hope that you know people will especially you know film critics will take a look at the film as as a as a film itself and not and not their personal reaction to arthur you know because i think whether or not you like him or not that's or whether or not you like arthur is not the point you know like if you could understand <laughs> where he's coming from you know, that I think is more important. And this, and this is somebody who's attempting to make a space for himself in a culture that is essentially sought to erase him, you know, and he's like trying to make sense of something that's somewhat meaningless to him. And so it's not a personal attack. It's not to say like, oh, Arthur doesn't, you know, he doesn't like this group or this or that, or so therefore I'm not going to like the film. Like, no, like there's, we want, we want people to understand where he's coming from, you know, what drives him and what, why he's making the decisions he makes. And if you don't like him, that's totally fine with us. Actually, he's a complex person. We all are as people. Um, but the idea is, is just, he doesn't have to be likable. We just, we hope he's understandable as a character, as a person, as a, you know. Yeah. And I think the people who have said that they relate so completely to Arthur, it's also really, it's a poignant thing, right? Because I think for, you know, a lot of people, when they watch films, 
I guess one of the main things that people do is when they watch characters in movies, they want to be like them, right? Because it's kind of this idealization of themselves or, you know, what they, they could be at their best. It's an idealized version. It's, it's, not, it's a perfect version of who they could be, not necessarily a real version. But when, when people have told us, like, I connect so much with Arthur, it's, it's everything. It's not just his good side, but it's also his bad side. It's also his struggles and his imperfections that they totally relate to. And I think that that was really powerful to hear for us because those are the most satisfying stories for me as a viewer, as an audience member to watch because it just stays with you. It's something that a story you watch, a person that you get to know, and it really stays with you. And it, and it makes you look at yourself and, and life in, in a different way rather than just someone that you can just blindly idolize and then throw away for the next person that comes out of you know a movie or something you talked about the experience at Camfest. i'm curious how was it screening in cleveland which is arthur's uh stomping grounds yeah that was really interesting unfortunately scott couldn't make it because he was off production on another project so i was kind of i was there for the screenings um by myself and i am not like scott is from chicago right so i would i would say he's from the midwest right would you say yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm from Vancouver. I grew, I was born in China, lived on the West Coast my whole life. So it's like the Midwest thing is still a little bit of a, like a foreign territory for me. So <laughs> I was going into it. I was a little bit like, uh, you know, a little bit worried, but it was actually really great. It was definitely a very tense festival because, um, you know, Arthur, you know, he still hasn't seen the film. He was not going to come to the screenings, but his ex-wife, Eliza, has seen the film and she was coming to one of the screenings and and she brought her entire family to watch it as well and we were you know going to have lunch before yeah it was a very tense time and and we also had this one review from the Cleveland Plain Dealer um, by a critic who basically again was just voicing her personal dislike for Arthur and saying that, you know, Eliza's character is in many ways more sympathetic, which I don't disagree with, which I don't think, you know, is a wrong, but it basically the whole article was about her personal view on that point rather than looking at the film. And and that article got taken by the Game and Gate trolls and sort of rehashed into a bunch of like, you know, over 2,000 hateful tweets about Arthur and the film. So <laughs> that was kind of a weird... <laughs> like when all these things were happening at the same time. The best part of that festival was the Q&A because the, that festival, their viewers are so diehard. They have people who go to that festival and watch like five to eight films a day for the whole duration of the festival. So I didn't know what to expect because looking into the audience, it was all, you know, a lot of older um, viewers, um, a, not that much diversity, <laughs> if you know what I mean. So I was kind of like, weary of you know what are the questions going to be like and it was actually great they had so many questions and they really you can tell that they really wanted to get to know him and really understand who he was what he was doing they wanted to understand my perspective as a filmmaker um and it ended up being really gratifying especially the last screening um which was the most well attended um one of the one viewer in the audience you know was just saying like how she loved the film and she really wanted me to, you know, check in on Arthur and make sure that he's okay because he's in such a, you know, bad state right now. And just, 
it was just really moving that she cared so much about Arthur that she would want someone to check in on him. And she was worried that he had no one to turn to in this hard time. So, yeah, it was good. <laughs> that is amazing. And what was uh, Eliza's reaction to the film? She had seen a link of the film before the screening. And in her email to us, she said, thanks, guys. It was really good. You know, <laughs> she wrote like one sentence back. But um, she watched it again, and I didn't get a chance to talk to her much after, but she actually tweeted a bunch, because she's also really active on Twitter. She tweeted a bunch um, after watching the film, and, you know, it was, it's again, just very reflective of, you know, she felt like it was a very poignant uh, film, and it made her look back on all the good times and the, you know, bad times of her year with Arthur, and... You know, in many ways, it made her, it gave her the courage to go on her own path right now in her life. So I, I think it was, that's kind of the, the reaction that we really enjoy from people that, you know, it was very, it was a very satisfying experience, but it was a bittersweet, you know, it was not just like candy coated fluff um, and that it made them think about, you know, their journey ahead. So I think that's really what the reaction that we like from audiences. How easy or difficult was it working with Sony in order to use the clips and actually get to talk to Alex Trebek? Sony was great in in the beginning. They were like very helpful with facilitating that. And I think they realized, you know, Arthur was the first person that they really embraced this idea that he's on Twitter and Jeopardy had was just starting to get on Twitter and they were kind of advertising, you know, him as a player which they'd never really done in the past. And so I think they realized this was like a real opportunity for them to move to kind of a younger generation because their average, you know, audience is like 58 years old or something and much older. Right. So I think uh, they just saw this as an opportunity for them as well. And we're definitely willing to let us shoot with Arthur on the stage. Now, of course, with that said, like that place is a prison when it comes to letting people in to film during Jeopardy when Jeopardy is actually being taped. Um, that is like locked down for so many reasons, I guess, but we didn't get access like that. We were, we watched tournament of champions. We weren't filming during when Arthur was actually on the tournament of champions. And I do have to, uh, nerdily ask you, how was it interviewing Alex Trebek? I decided that, uh, you know, since I was Canadian, that maybe we would have a connection. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, um, <laughs> It was actually, to be honest, um, it was very scary. We we had done a lot of prep work going into that interview. So we, Scott and I came up with questions together, and then we sent our list of questions to our executive producer, Mark Harris, who, you know, is a very seasoned documentary uh, filmmaker. And he gave us feedback, and we re-massaged the questions. And um, my goal that, during that interview was just to stay relaxed and not be super nervous. And, you know, and basically it, it went well. I mean, he's a professional, of course. You know, he's a consummate professional. So we did a little bit of small talk in the beginning, brought up the Canadian thing, you know. Um, he talked about uh, a few, like, anecdotes, and then we got into the interview. And I didn't want to just ask the most typical questions that most people ask him about, you know, what it's like being on the show or whatever. You know, we really wanted to talk about some of those um, topics, like, by uh, being a virus celebrity, the pros and cons, you know, being Arthur as a player that really challenged the game. So, yeah, it was really fun and it was a very sort of a good energy back and forth between us. And I think that, you know, he was just himself, you know, which I, I think that was really good for us, you know, that in some ways that he 
you know, there were some answers where he maybe was saying things that had been predetermined, you know, in terms of marketing for the show. But there were other answers where he really was thinking on his feet and just saying what sort of came to him. So that really, I think that was helpful for us in the film. The Jeopardy staff did say afterward that it was one of the best, better interviews. Maybe like, I think they said it was one of the best interviews they had heard um, anyone give Alex Trebek, which I was pretty, I mean, we were pretty proud of that. I don't, I don't know. It's just, I think he gets a lot of the same questions. Uh, we should actually release that interview sometime, like maybe like an extras thing. <laughs> it's, an <interesting laughs> it's an interesting interview in full. Yeah. We actually we yeah. interviewed uh, Ken Jennings as well, not to jump shit, but he, he got cut from the film, unfortunately. But that was also kind of, you know, interesting to hear somebody talk who has won 74 Jeopardy games. As a complete nerd, I would totally love to hear what he has to say and the rest of that Trebek interview. So hopefully when the DVD release comes around, those might be on there. I think it's good DVD extras or Vimeo on demand extras now. You could that's a feature. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, oh, nice. Unfortunately, it just didn't quite fit our, our filming. I mean, he's just it was he was so knowledgeable about Jeopardy, but we were like, eh, not, yeah, not making a Jeopardy documentary. And it kind of slowed us down and people felt like it was a little slow. So. Sorry, Ken, yeah, about Ken, that. Ken Jennings was actually, he had a really interesting backstory, too, of how he got interested in Jeopardy because he, um, you know, was living in South Korea with his parents. And uh, the only TV channel he could watch was like the Armed Forces channel or whatever. And they would have Jeopardy on every day. Um, and that was sort of his connection to home in some ways. So I don't know. I thought that was really interesting. And yeah, we would love to release that at some point. Well, you talked about how the film is going to be playing at Hot Docs. Probably by the time that this airs, it will have played there. Where else is the film set to be playing over the next, uh, say, month or two, if you know? I mean, because I know it's always tough to kind of predict where things are going to be and how things are going to play out when it comes to festivals. Early May, we're screening at the Los Angeles Asian Pacific Film Festival. And at the same time, that Hot Docs is going on. So we're kind of splitting our time between the two fast. And then after that, we don't have anything lined up just yet. But we hope that uh, the film was going to be available to view one way or another. We're still kind of looking for distribution. And, and that's kind of our next step um, at this point is making it available to a wider audience and not just do the festival circuit. And also, I, we applied for some uh, film festivals in Asia, um, in Taiwan as well. And that would be really amazing to see this film play there and have, you know, audiences' reactions to it. Yeah, we hope that it can, it can reach that Asian audience as well. Well, I'm curious what you guys are working on, because I know that you both have uh, films that you're still completing at the moment. Um, Scott, you've got a Vicious Cycle. How is that coming along? You know, we are actually, um, we're going to recut it this year, I believe, at some point. And in the meantime, I've started working on this other documentary um, about a basically a professional skier who's battling an opiate addiction. And so I think it's just, and we's probably in the same boat, but you just try to do as much as you can and work on each project when you have the time and um, resources and just basically always be working on something. So, And I'm also shooting um, one of we's documentaries <laughs> as well, so busy. I actually started working on it before we started uh, filming Who is Arthur Chu. Um, so that's been going on for almost three years now. So it's a, it's a documentary called A Woman's Work, and it follows these young women who are fighting against wage theft and um, labor exploitation. And they all are former NFL cheerleaders who are suing their teams and the league itself. I've been following these women's stories, um, and Scott has come on to help me shoot 
So hopefully we'll be finished with production by the end of this year. Um, and then, you know, it takes a while to edit and stuff. So that is ongoing. And at the same time, I've been working with my dad on sort of a more experimental, like, art project that Scott has also been helping us shoot, which is about um, these migrant workers in Canada, in the Toronto area, who actually come from Jamaica. So they spend about eight months out of a year in Canada working in these peach orchards. And then the other, the rest of the time they live in Jamaica and they've been doing this consistently for about 10 to 20 years. With that, we're having a exhibition. It's going to participate in an exhibition in Toronto um, on July 1st for Canada's 150th anniversary. And it's going to be like a five minute version, a short documentary version that's going to be screened in this art exhibit um, at the art the art gallery of Ontario. So basically, we is keeping me in, employed doing meaningful things so I don't have to do <laughs> corporate video or uh, commercials. I probably don't have to ask this, but can folks uh, keep up with you and your work on Twitter or Facebook or anything? Yeah, I mean, we have our social media for our film, which on Facebook is Arthur Two Film, like Facebook.com, Arthur Two Film. And our Twitter and Instagram handles are the same, which is Arthur Two Film. And then for my personal Twitter, it's at we is rain. So at YU is rain. And I have my Instagram account, which is also the same thing. Yeah, mine is uh, my Instagram is Scott Drucker 13. And my Twitter is very strange. It's it's I don't even know if uh, it'll make sense, but it's Nali Bijan Creason, which means teddy bear crisis in Swedish. It's really strange, I know. But uh, I didn't really think I'd ever really be using Twitter because I don't like Twitter, ironically. And so I just kind of created this account that like no one could find me. And then I realized that, oh, I have to use Twitter. And then I put my name on it and blah, blah, blah. Well, I will be sure to link to those as well as the Arthur True Film, uh, dot com and all the social media for that over at our website, projection-boot.com. Thank you guys so much for talking tonight. It was a real pleasure and, and best of luck with the documentary. I really recommend that people check it out. There are so many great things happening in this doc. It really uh, brings up a lot of terrific questions. Thank you so much. Yeah, great chatting. Thank you. back and we were talking about who is Arthur Chu and uh, thank you so much Rod for coming on this episode it was a lot of fun I was glad to finally have somebody I could talk to about this documentary because as we said before this is one of those that really needs discussion afterwards this isn't one of those we're going to wrap it in a bow and just give it to you uh, presents that uh, some documentaries try to be yeah thanks for having me back it is definitely that kind of film I wonder you know what more i might think about in the week or two weeks to come uh because it is one of those movies that it does make you think again i'm still trying to figure out if i liked it or didn't like it i'm just sort of in the middle right now just still trying to to ponder but i do appreciate having me back on the show and letting me stumble over words oh yeah anytime anytime (laughs) you want to stumble over words you're more than welcome thanks 
<laughs> so what is keeping you busy these days? A couple times a week, I still manage to update flickattack.com. And what about your book addict site? Uh, bookgasm.com is updated uh, a couple times a week as well. The days of updating daily are no longer. <laughs> Life is too difficult. I was amazed that you were able to do that for so long. Yeah, I think it's like 15 years old now. Wow. I I think, yeah. It's been a while. <laughs> well, I will be sure to link to those in the show notes. So if people want to go over to projection-boot.com, we'll have more information about Rod. We'll have more information about our filmmakers and where you can find out about who is Arthur Chu. Find out screenings near you. And I hope that folks enjoy this documentary as much as we did. Thank you very much. tell you what you didn't win. A 20-volume set of the Encyclopedia International, a case of turtle wax, and a year's supply of rice the San Francisco treat. But that's not all. You also made yourself look like a jerk in front of millions of people. And you brought shame and disgrace on your family name for generations to come. You don't get to come back tomorrow. You don't even get a lousy copy of our home game. You're a complete loser.
Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.